Psalm 14, a look at, well, God's view of the world. Um, Foolish people don't believe in God, and sometimes it seems like we're those people, doesn't it? We, We just sort of walk through life as though we're not believing, and so just a challenge for us about our faith, and that's sort of the direction we're going this morning. So let's just bow, ask the Lord to direct our hearts, ask him to help us as we study his word this morning. Father, we come before you, we're thankful, thankful for your great love for us, thankful for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you would come into this world and that you would pay the penalty for our sin. Thank you that we can worship you because of what you have done, not because we're good people. We realize the struggle with corruption, with with selfishness, with all of these, these sinful acts, but you, you, Lord, have made it possible that we live for you, and so help us do that. And even as we've gathered here this morning, we, we lift up your name. You are God above all else. You are God above all others. And we trust in you. We trust in your truth. Help us to understand that truth a little bit more today, a little bit more profoundly And Lord, may we continue to grow and to live uh, our lives for you. Thank you for this time we have together. Amen. Well, we talked a lot about faith last week, last weekend, as we considered the cross. Um, And we realize that faith is not just simple belief. It's not just simple belief that sustains us as Christians, but it's an active relationship of faith. And we understand that Jesus Christ is on the other end of that relationship. It's not just about us trying to hold on to him. It's about him holding on to us. And as we exercise our faith in Christ, as we live for him, as we live for him, we keep going forward we keep growing together and I think maybe it's an appropriate time that we we just in our study we're going back into James this morning that we think of what we we're talking about when we say faith because there are different I guess directions that word goes in when we talk about faith a lot of times we're simply talking about our belief or our ability to believe as human beings and many people talk about well I have faith in this, or I believe that. And then we talk about the idea of our faith, the Christian faith. Some people would call that just religion. But then there's that faith that is a gift from God. That faith where God grabs hold of us and gives us a understanding, a confidence in his reality in his desire to have a relationship with him and gives us an understanding of our need, our need for him. Well, we had a workout in our faith this past week. As a celebration of of what we call Easter brings us face to face with what is at the center of our faith. We had an extra service last week. We were meditating more on the word of God on the gospel, we were worshiping together more. And I'm wondering, did you notice the effect that it had on how you lived and felt? Was there an effect this week? Did you feel closer to God? You know, the verse later in James, we actually sang about it, draw near to God, he draws near to you. Did you, because of the extra workout last week, have a greater sense of God's presence with you in your day-to-day life? I don't have to have you put up your hand, but you can think through that and think through maybe the implications of that. The fact that when we put work in to our relationship with the Lord, he doesn't hold back. He draws closer to us. He encourages us. He shows himself present. Because of that, I was thinking that we need to maybe experimentally sign out some of 
some of the group who lead us in worship, if you're going to have a particularly bad week or a difficult time, you can take them with you and they'll just sort of stand in the background. I don't know if there'll be a cost involved, probably a little more if you want the drums to come. Or, but these people could back you up and, and help you worship God through your experiences of life. Does it make a difference? You bet it does. You bet it does. And so I hope that you think even of these times when we gather together here and we're singing, we're worshiping, you don't look at them as the worship team. We're the worship team. They may be leading us, but we are all to be worshiping God. And so we will all get benefit from that worship, from that time of, of focus. We have this faith that we believe in. We have this faith that is, has taken a hold of us. But you know, sometimes our faith can become a little bit frayed, can't it? And so at the beginning of James chapter, uh, or at the beginning of James chapter 2, which is where we're going this morning, James says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And I was considering what direction we'd go in after Easter. We'd, we'd done James chapter 1, and I wasn't sure if that was where we should continue on right now. But as I read James chapter 2, and as I read what it says here about our faith, I thought, this is a perfect continuation consideration of our faith the christian faith a consideration of our faith our belief in jesus christ and what he's done in our lives and james deals on a very practical level with everything doesn't he anybody can understand james he talks about things that are going on in your life and mine that we see very clearly and very obviously But those very outward, obvious things have internal, profound application to our lives as well. What happens when our faith gets frayed? Not afraid, but frayed, as in a rope or a wire. We know that if our faith isn't working, if it's not changing our life, there's some kind of a, a disconnect and we know what that means if we're talking about electricity. I had, when we moved into our house, one room that had a curious thing where the outlet or the switch for one room ran the outlet in another room. And it was because of a problem in the third little electrical box. You know, we, we understand that if, if the light isn't turning on when you switch the switch, if it's not doing what it should be doing, there's a problem somewhere inside with a connection, isn't there? There's a difficulty. And so you have to look inside. You have to figure out what the problem is. And so that's what we do with James. We look at the very practical things that he talks about, he talks about even just the tongue the way we speak, and we go, well, what does that mean inside? What does that mean internally? Where is the problem in the connection? Sometimes it's not that there's a disconnect. Sometimes it's connected incorrectly. Once again, if you're talking about the wiring in the house, sometimes a greater problem, oftentimes a greater problem when it's connected improperly than when it's just disconnected. Think about that and wiring. A faulty connection, a short circuit, sparking heat, fire. That's an issue. Whereas if it's just a wire's hanging loose and not touching anything, it's not usually a big problem. We think of our faith. Sometimes faith lived incorrectly is a greater problem than if somebody is not living in their faith. Well, we're going to look at a few things that James talks about here in James chapter 2. And uh, 
we're going to look at, first of all, the activity and attitude of a faulty faith in verses 1 to 7. Let's read them together, these verses. He starts out, as I said, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So we see the problem right here in these first verses. There's a problem when we are treating people inconsistently. We look at people according to the way the world thinks. That's an issue. We give preferential treatment to those who are considered important. Now I know here and Throughout the scriptures, a lot of times it's the rich and the poor, and that can have an effect in this world today, too. But a lot of times with us, it's just prestige. It's people we think are important by our standards today, those people who might have power. And sometimes we give those sort of people We're tempted, I would say, always to give those sort of people preferential treatment because of what we are going to get out of the relationship. Not necessarily that they're going to hand us money, but we get a good feeling when we're around important people, don't we? We do. It builds us up. It's our human nature. We want to be significant. And we think, whoa, certain people in this world, they're considered significant. I want to be their friends. And James is talking about a problem in the early church. He's talking about a difficulty. He says, listen, you shouldn't be paying attention to one and ignoring the other. You shouldn't be thinking of other people according to world the world's standards. That's not kingdom behavior. You've been called into the kingdom of God to live like the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be loving everybody. Now this doesn't mean that we agree with everything they say. It doesn't mean we flatter people. But what it means is we sacrifice ourselves our wants, our desires, and we minister to people according to truth. No matter who they are, whether they're considered high standard or considered of low standard by the world. Jesus was very clear to everybody, wasn't he? We see him unaffected, it seems, by the standards of the world. As he walks through this life, He talked to everyone about sin. Everybody. It didn't matter whether they were rich or poor. It didn't matter whether they were religious or absolutely not religious. It didn't really matter what they believed or how they felt they fit into life or whether they even believed in God. God was real. And all of us stand before God as responsible for our sin. And so Christ was very clear in his message. He spoke it clearly to all. And he talked about salvation. Gave them the good news of the gospel. Which only, salvation only comes through submitting to God. But you know, we think about Jesus' ministry and we think about 
who was following him and what was said. And we saw, we see there's a disproportion. More poor people follow Jesus than rich people. But it wasn't because he said, oh, I prefer one group over the other. No, it was because more poor people, more sinful people understood, it, understood that they were needy. The people who were living lives deep in sin, they, they knew they were sinners. The people who were poor, they felt, man, we're, we're, we're without, we, we need. But the rich people, the religious people, said, we're good, we're fine. We don't need this guy telling us we're sinners. And so we're challenged in here to look at people like Jesus looked at people. James says, don't judge with evil thoughts. Now this doesn't mean that we say, okay, we we don't think of the rich then. We ignore them and look for poor people. No, that's not what it's talking about it's saying have a kingdom point of view toward all people we got that back in chapter 1 in verses 9 and 11 where it talks about the lowly brother the one considered to be the have not and say you know what the poor in Christ are rich eternally we can feel that we don't have as much as others but boy if we have Christ it doesn't matter where we're at in the economic scale. It doesn't matter where we're at in terms of prestige and what people think of us because we have a relationship with God. Everything's good. And then it talks about the rich people, how they have. It seems like everything's taken care of, but they're humbled because they realize to have in this life, to be considered wealthy, powerful, What does it really matter? Because this is a very short life. And our relationship with God is so much more important. It's eternal. Our relationship with God is eternal, whether it's good or bad. And so it sort of levels the playing field. And we think to ourselves, how can we help promote or communicate this truth in our relationships. Certainly not with preferential treatment. Certainly not with looking at people who are important by the world standard and fawning over them and disregarding people who do not have power, wealth, prestige according to the world standard. That's not how we communicate the eternal truth of the kingdom. In fact, Preferential treatment often goes beyond just hypocrisy, hypocritical behavior. It goes to the place where we're actually honoring evil. You think of the people who the world lifts up. You see what James says here in verse 7. Verse 6 and 7, let's read it. But you have dishonored the poor men. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? And of course at that time, and we just studied a couple weeks ago, Zacchaeus and boy, that guy who was a a tax collector, one of the guys who was scraping and scrambling and, and getting ahead in the world. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And just thinking of those who we might lift up, those who the world thinks important, and we might get sucked into treating them in a way that we shouldn't. Think of the celebrities of the world today, whether they be actors, or politicians, or athletes, or musicians, or people. We have this other strange category today, People who are just famous for being famous. They haven't done anything. 
nothing significant, nothing important, but everybody knows their name. If we lift up those people, if we give them high regard, what else is involved in their lives? What other sins are involved there that we could be honoring? What evil gets hoisted up on the pedestal with them? And James asks this question, you know, don't we end up eroding the very foundation that we stand on? I was thinking of that. It may not even be what we say, but it may be even in our own hearts. As I cruise through the news, as I look at the headlines, who is it that I read about, that I want to know about, that I, oh, I know them. They're important. They're significant. All of a sudden, I'm reading about somebody who, according to the kingdom of God and righteousness and truth, there's no value there for it. But I'm reading about them, filling my head full of information that kind of useless not at all helpful when I could be finding out what's going on in the real world consider that consider what God is challenging you and I with through the words of James who is it that we regard as important who is it that we lift up As we lift them up, what else are we lifting up with them? What sort of lifestyle and sin are we honoring? Wouldn't it be better to be naive, simple, out of it, as some people say, with regard to a lot of these things? It's a challenge. But it will change the way that we live our lives and that we, the way we regard people who are around us in the everyday. Because we're accountable for our faulty faith. Let's look at verses 8 to 11, read them together. It says, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. And are convicting the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Well, as we begin reading and in verse 8, it becomes abundantly clear what the problem is if we're showing partiality to some people. It's a lack of love. If we're treating people inconsistently, we don't have godly love or godlike love. Verse 8 says, you've been told Love your neighbor as yourself. And they call it the royal law. In what sense is it the royal law? Well, this law was crowned as the supreme order that should dictate our behavior with our fellow man. You remember when Jesus was challenged? He's challenged by the scribe. You know, what's the greatest law? What's the most important law? And Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he says the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. The first law, love God, takes care of that first group of commandments that focus on our relationship, our individual relationship as a human being toward God. Do you love him above all else? alone as God. Then there are a second group of commandments that deal with our relationship with our fellow man. In fact, they're expanded on in in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I mean, there's a ton of them there in terms of the Mosaic law, how you should treat others. But they're all 
condensed into this one idea, love your neighbor as yourself. Think of how you give preference to yourself. Think of how you care for yourself or have this automatic desire to take care of yourself. Now apply that to other people. You love them. You care for them. You want the best for them. Love your neighbor. Somebody asked, right? Who's my neighbor? Because we, and it's a good question. It's a good question for us today because in our language, our English language, we've really reduced that word. Well, the guy who lives next door, or maybe a couple doors, these are my neighbors. But the word means your near one, and your neighbor who lives next to you can be a near one. But in Jesus' example, right, the Good Samaritan, nobody was neighbors in that story in the way we talk about neighbors. And this fact, the Samaritan came along and he was near to somebody who just gotten beaten up and laid in the side of the road. You see, loving your neighbor is loving someone who is near to you and in need. Sometimes the needs aren't so obvious. Sometimes they're deep, internal, spiritual needs. Those people around us need to hear about Christ. They need to hear about his hope. They need to understand the, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells us, love your neighbors. He tells us, love the brethren. Love our brothers and sisters in Christ. He tells us to love our enemies. And we realize there's nobody who falls outside of these categories. We're to love all. We're to love those who, who we come in contact with. And this takes care of all the commandments. We have a Christ-like love coming from our hearts. And this is, this is good news. This is encouraging. This is less complicated for us, isn't it? If we can just love people with a Christ-like love, we don't have to worry about thousands of different situations, hundreds of Old Testament biblical laws. We just have to have a genuine love for them that's guided by that first love that we have for God. A genuine love. Think back to a verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. The King James is, uh, let your love be without dissimulation. You scratch your head. I scratch my head about that word. But in the newer translations, it says, let your love be genuine. And really, the better translation there is, love is genuine. It's obviously an appeal to us to have genuine love. But the words there are saying, love is genuine. And if it's not genuine... It's not love. It's not true love. If it's not authentic, if it's not something that's from Christ and flowing through us, then we're not loving. But it's good news to know that we can love in relationship with Christ. We can love, we can fulfill the laws and we can love others. But the difficulty here, the bad news presented here in these verses, is that to fail in these more acceptable sins, like being inhospitable, not caring, ignoring others, is to be a transgressor, it says twice, of the law. Part of that law talks about being a murderer, being adulterer. And to just simply not care about other people, not love them as we're supposed to in Christ, we become transgressors of the entire law. Sinners before God. 
What a challenge. To be guilty, you might ask, of these lesser points, practically, we understand them as lesser points. Because obviously, to ignore somebody is not as bad as killing them, right? That's true. (laughs) But to ignore these lesser points, we become transgressors of the same law. It's showing hatred toward people when we ignore them, when we don't help them, when we don't reach out to them, when we're not loving them as we ought. Lack of kindness, we're still falling short. Because these are necessary prerequisites in honoring God. Now we might ask ourselves, how important are these prerequisites? How important are any of these prerequisites in any sort of situation, these little details, how important are they? Well, it depends. It depends on how important the subject is that you're talking about. You're talking about making soup, or are you talking about space travel? You think about that. If you're making soup, what do you do? You, you start off with some water, and then you start putting things in. I was going to say, if it's chicken soup, you better put chicken in, but there's a lot of chicken soup made these days that doesn't have any chicken in it, isn't there? You can buy those little packages and throw water. But, you know, when you're talking about soup, you can do a whole lot of things. You know, you want to put some ingredients in, you want to put some spices in, and sometimes you can forget one thing or the other, and it's not really a big deal. But in the end, you come out with soup, and as somebody I know says, well, no one dies, so it was all good, you know? Not really important, the little details. But you know, when you talk about space travel, I remember hearing things about how, you know, when they're putting all the things together for, for, for the ship and all that, just how, how careful they are that no dust gets in. They're even concerned about static charges being picked up in some of the the little modules and parts and all the stuff that we don't understand anything about. They don't just go, well, fill the tank with explosive material and point it up and, and, and let her go, you know. They're worried about the finest details. And we know what happens when some of the details go wrong. 20 years ago, a small piece of foam broke off in takeoff, injures the wing of the Columbia, and on re-entry, it blows up. They weren't saying, oh, well, 90% of the trip was super, giving each other high fives. There was loss of life. It was a failure. And in 37 years ago, there was the, the Challenger. And it was just simply a seal that gave way. Once again, re-entry. The test comes for re-entry. They go through the heat and the fire and there's an explosion. Everybody lost again. You see, we can look at something like God's law, obedience, following him, and we can think, ah, you know, not a big deal. The de- don't sweat the, the details. But you know, I would say that the mission that we have been given as human beings to be the image bearers of God, a holy God, is more important than the mission that NASA has, whatever mission it is, if it's to get to the moon or Mars or just the space station, all that sort of stuff. No, we have been given as human beings, we've created here to be God's image bearers. What's it say about him? He's holy. What does God say to us? Well, back in Leviticus, 
when the law is given, he says, Be ye holy, as I am holy. In the New Testament, 1 Peter repeats that. It's absolutely important that we are holy like he's holy. Holy is purity, set apart. He's perfect. Sometimes our lives, with our disregard for holiness and for honoring God and for doing what he's called us to do, it's like we're trying to do re-entry riding on a paper airplane. A disregard for spiritual safety. We're not caring. What hope do we have? Well, we have Christ. We have Christ and what he did for us. We have what is called in the last couple of verses, the law of liberty. In verses 12 and 13 of this paragraph we're looking at, it says, so speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who is not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment as I mentioned before in Christ we have the opportunity to fulfill this command this great command this law to love our neighbors as ourselves we have the opportunity to fulfill it in Christ to fulfill the uncompromising requirements of God I think back to the verse in Matthew, or the verses in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Turn back there with me for a moment. Matthew chapter 5. In verses 18 to 20, Jesus is talking to the people. As he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to them about the requirements for holiness, for righteous living. He says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter into the kingdom of God. Unless you are living more righteous than the most righteous people you know. The Pharisees were the keepers of the law. Right to the letter. They missed the spirit of the law. Many times they found ways around, but, but in the people's minds... In that day, they were the most righteous. And he says, you got to do better. Because he was talking about the heart, wasn't he? He was talking about not just being formal and fulfilling. No, he says, from your heart. But you know, back in verse 17, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus gives a hint of what is taking place. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we understand now that Jesus Christ was talking about the cross. He was talking about dying to pay for our sins. The God-man, Jesus Christ, who lived an absolutely holy life, because of who he was and what he did. He was completely, his death was completely sufficient for the sins of the world. We think about that. We have the opportunity to be holy because of what Christ did for us. How does that make you feel? Have you put your trust in Christ? Has it taken away your guilt and shame? Has it given you a, a sense of freedom in this life? I'm not condemned before God. I'm not falling short. Not because I'm perfect. Not because I've never done anything wrong. Not because I'm not still struggling with wrong in my life. But because Jesus Christ paid for my sin. I mean, that's what our celebration last week was all about, wasn't it? Christ died for our sin. He rose again, 
showed his power over death and sin. The rigidness of this law. We must be more righteous than the Pharisees, and yet Jesus paid for our sin. We're not under the condemnation of the law. In John 8, 34 to 36, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But then in verse 36, he says, But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Are we slaves to sin? We struggle with sin. But you know, if we are in Christ, if we have that faith relationship with Christ, we've been set free. We don't have to sin. Without Christ, people will just go on sinning. They have no other option, no other choice. But in Christ, we've been freed from the power of sin. We can truly love other people. We can live and walk in freedom. How would you describe your life? Is your life just a fight as as sin imposes its power on you? Or are you reveling in the freedom you have in Christ? Do you realize I am freed from sin? There's no more condemnation because Christ paid for it on the cross. And now, even as I struggle with wrongdoing in this life, I have this freedom to to be forgiven, to, to confess that to Christ, and to go on and to leave sin behind. You sense the joy of walking away from sin. You have the freedom of not living under condemnation, not feeling trapped. Are you living out that freedom? Are we living out that freedom? Think of it. This last verse. This last verse talks about mercy. Referring back to, let's think back to this idea of showing partiality in our faith. The rich, the poor. Are we showing mercy to them? Are we loving them as we ought? Not just the poor, but also the rich. Those people who would be seen as important in the world, are we showing them mercy by living out before them the gospel of Jesus Christ? Loving them in truth. Sharing the truth with them. Are we doing that? Because the question arises here that if we're not showing mercy, we need to think, have I received mercy? Do I understand the mercy that I've received? And I think back to that parable that Jesus told of the unmerciful servant. Remember the the one who had such a debt before the king that he couldn't pay the debt in a lifetime. And he fell down before the king and he begged for mercy. And the king said, you know what? I'm going to forgive it. You're forgiven your debt. Walk away. He could have thrown him in prison, but he didn't. He forgave him. That servant went walking out of there and encountered another servant who owed him lunch money. And he grabbed him by the throat and he said, you are going to prison until you pay every cent. And Jesus says, look, look at that story. Think of it. Did that first servant really understand the mercy he'd been given? Did he know the freedom that he'd been given by the king? Did he have an appreciation 
for the love that had been shared with him? Not at all. And he wasn't ready to show that love to others, was he? What about us? Are we ready to show love to everybody? To think about them more than ourselves? You might say, I have to live my life. I can't do everything for everyone. And that's true. But it doesn't mean that we serve no one in no way. You know, we tend to fail on that side of things, don't we? You know, the Lord only asks us to obey him. And he knows what we have time for. He knows what our capacity is. He knows the trajectory we are on. He knows where you're at. And this is the part that I love best about this whole process of studying God's word together. I can't make proper application to your life. But the spirit of God can. You're in relationship with him. And I don't want you to be thinking, man, that's Steve. What does he want? Leave me alone. No. Let's all take this up with the Lord. He wants you and I to grow. He wants us to go live our lives before the world in a way that will be an adventure of grace. Where we're showing grace to others in ways that we don't think we can. And he says, no, I can through you. And we go forward and we grow and it's exciting and people are impacted by our lives and we encourage one another. Is that the sort of life that we're involved in? Think of it as climbing, you know, all these people do the wall climbing or rock climbing. They're climbing up, you know, some cliff or some wall that has holds on it. You know, if you were just jump on that wall and start climbing, use your imagination, how would it feel? But you know, when you climb with ropes, it's a different experience, isn't it? Because you've got something you know has got you. You've got something that's got you and that's what it's like with Christ. People who live life trying to do what is right, they have no confidence. They're climbing without ropes. And they know it's just a matter till something's gonna happen. And they're going to get bit for showing mercy. Things aren't going to work out. But you know what? In Christ, everything's paid for. We have perfect confidence that he's got us more so than we've even got him. And we can climb, not with a recklessness, but with a carefreeness about this life. We don't have to worry about, well, if I, if I do this, if God prompts me to do this to help this, what about my thing? What about, we don't have to worry about, we just have to learn to listen to his voice. We need to exercise our faith so that we have more freedom. Because you know, and I know, we get on a, we're not experienced climbers. If we get on a wall and we're climbing and we've got a rope, we're still not that confident because we go, what if the rope breaks? And you have to go through a couple falls before you go, oh, this thing works. It's okay to fall. It's okay to struggle. Just grab on and get going again. And James challenges us to be involved 
in this life of faith, this relationship of faith with Christ. To show mercy to others consistently. Doesn't matter whether they're seen as somebody is important or less important or, or whatever. We, we show Christ's love as he moves through us to all. And it makes everything we do more significant. You remember that other thing? Christ said, cup of cold water given in my name. Little acts, little victories like that are significant as we live out our faith in relationship with Christ. I want to read as we conclude just from James chapter 12. Or sorry, James chapter 12. That would be hard to find. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 verse 9 says, Let love be genuine, or love is genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. In spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be consistent in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Live the Christian life with abandon. Heavenly Father, help us. Thank you for the challenge. We, we see it, I see it in my life. Where my heart can get turned by what the world thinks imp- is important, even if I think it's my own life, can get in the way of living out my faith in you, my faith relationship with you in, with an impartiality. Challenge my heart, Lord. Challenge my thinking. Help each one of us to be living in the power of your spirit with the knowledge that Jesus Christ paid for our sin. We don't have to look over a shoulder. We don't have to wonder about what's happening next because you have us, Lord. We are in your hands. And you've just dropped us down into this world to live out your kingdom values in relationship with you. To live a life that would be considered by the people of this world as dangerous. Because we're trusting in the unseen hand that holds us more so than we even hold you. Thank you, Lord. Help us to love. Help us to live out your love as you've called us to do. Amen.